Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I am your host, John Benzik, from VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you don't know what you're doing. Today is going to be exciting as I'll be doing something new. For the first time, I'll be interviewing two guests, Sarah and David Russick. This is an impressive down-to-earth couple with an amazing track record of successful entrepreneurship and leadership. Sarah and David together have co-founded and led two companies to exit. One of them, started in 2005, was called Bagster, which was a large dumpster bag made from woven polypropylene. Used by homeowners and contractors, Sarah and David sold this product through retailers across the U.S., including Ace Hardware, Home Depot, True Value, and others. The other company that Sarah and David founded was in 1991, and that was called Tubbs. It was an innovative waste and recycling services company. More specifically, think of those metal dumpsters that you sometimes see in front of homes or in alleys, mostly used for residential construction project waste. But their style of dumpster wasn't the large ones that you see, but it was a much smaller and convenient for smaller renovation projects. It was really cool. Now both Sarah and David lead Gopher Angels, which is a network of angel investors that fund early stage startups. They're also quite involved in other entrepreneur supporting endeavors here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, probably too numerous to mention. Sarah and David, thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure to have you here. And welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Hi, John. Thanks, John. You're welcome. Thank you very much. It's going to be fun. So Sarah and David, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about Bagster for our listeners. And we'll talk about how you came up with the idea, who you sold to, the number and types of products that you offered, the number of employees, things like that. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. We'll talk more about how you launch your business in some key functions of that business. And the final part is the let's get personal component where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Sarah and David, are you guys ready for some questions? Very hard hitting questions. <laughs> we are, John. <laughs> That's great. Give me the basics. Sarah and David, how did you see Bagster as a business opportunity? Tell us the story of the origin of that idea. So, John, when we invented Bagster here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, back in 2005, we had 
we had a special challenge. We essentially had to develop two businesses. We had uh, a consumer product business and we had to develop a supporting service business. In addition to that, we had the extra challenge of pioneering a whole new market because nothing like this existed in the US. Now, you asked where the idea came from. Fortunately, we'd had a prior business, like you said, Tubbs Incorporated, um, which we'd been operating across the Midwest for several years. It was through that that we gained substantial knowledge, um, but we also understood the limiting factors that that business model provided. And when we came across Bagster, we immediately saw opportunity or the idea for Bagster, we immediately saw the ways we could overcome business challenges uh, that our earlier companies had presented to us. So da- so let me ask, so David, I read somewhere you were out of the country and you saw this being done somewhere else, right? Is that sort of the spark of it? And then you brought it back and considered Apple applying it here. Yeah, the original concept for, for Baxter actually came from Europe. So first in Barcelona, where the uh, the city gave these small bags to local residents for remodeling because they, the streets were so narrow, they couldn't get full-size dumpsters in there. Then a company in the UK commercialized that concept. We came across this idea through an acquaintance that was in London and saw an advertisement for the UK company. The difference is that the size of the bag was no no larger than our home garbage can. But we took the idea and sized it for the U.S. market. You know, what's amazing about this is what Sarah was mentioning, the, the two-part aspect of the business model. And, and I, I would imagine that would scare a lot of people off, having that two-part mechanism, both manufacturing the bag, getting it sold through retail, but also having that support mechanism to have the trucks come and pick it up. But you guys were sort of well-suited for that to a degree, were you not? Or was that really a different animal? No, it was very similar, although the Tubbs business did not have a retail component to it. It really was a chicken and an egg issue. So we wanted to have the bags in retail on the shelf. Ace has true value, Home Depot, as you mentioned earlier. But we couldn't sell the bags without a collection infrastructure behind it as well. So we did, uh, we had a, a rollout plan in each metro area to go in and get the bags in the market, support it with a truck and a driver, and build the business to keep that truck and driver fully at full capacity. When you first started that business in the early stages, let's say the first month after you really started seriously considering that idea, how confident were you on a scale of 1 to 10 that that would work here in the United States, especially with adapting that bag a little bit and um, sort of that two-part business model? That's a great question. How does, how does one know that their product is going to work? We had a really deliberate plan. We came across the idea, like David said, in late August of 2005. Our story is very textbook. And when we determined that this had potential, if we adapted it and adjusted it for the U.S. market, um, we realized pretty quickly that it had potential to scale here in the U.S. And we actually started where I believe a lot of entrepreneurs should start, 
and that's at the exit strategy. We quickly identified who would be, what our exit strategy would be, and built, uh, built our path to get there. And we, we literally talked about this over, over a glass of wine, and we jotted some notes on an envelope, um, and it, it was so clear at the time that the opportunity was here and that we had a lot to learn, but we already had a lot of resources we'd accumulated over years of you know, experience in international business, experience with early stage high growth companies, um, experience with corporates. We had this set of knowledge on top of running our own companies that, that, that really equipped us and armed us with what we needed to do. The best component about it though, John, is that we had access to a stellar team. Once we got our ideas jotted on the back of the envelope, the next day we grabbed our team and we said, hey, we have this idea. And this team was, was um, already in place. We had worked with them on our other businesses. We knew who to select from that group and we knew who we had to, had to find and, and in addition to the team members at the table. It was awesome because they immediately also saw the immense opportunity. That is really exciting to sort of bring everybody together. And I, I can't imagine how exciting that must have been to have that existing business in place and then bring this idea to the group. Yeah. And it goes to show, too, that building on what you know works. This wasn't our first startup. And so they say, you know, as you do more startups, the easier it gets. And I, I think that this was a case in point for that. And you sold both companies to another player at some point. And I'm curious to know, regarding the Bagster in comparison with the Tubbs, in your minds, David and Sarah, was Bagster more of a, was that a, a bigger win? Was that a better case history as you two sort of look back? Oh, hands down. Absolutely. This was something that we, we put on paper and uh, created a plan around, and it went nearly flawlessly. And I don't mean easily, but our, we followed our strategy. We had very few um, hiccups along the way. And the business model itself is significantly different than our earlier business model. And so that made the difference about how we grew the company. And frankly, Bagster tapped a lot more required a lot more from us than the Tubbs model does um, because it has the, the retail component, the sourcing and manufacturing components, the branding and uh, market awareness components, and uh, um, sure. yeah. oh, and the logistics, yeah. The, the other important part that, that we really had to get right was the infrastructure development. And the, 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 having, the need to build all of those pieces at the same time just set it into a different category of business. Yeah, and did you sort of run this through the Tubbs business infrastructure at first and in terms of the operations and the personnel? And then to what extent, to what extent did it threaten that business even if you saw some early success? No, it, it was, you bring up a good point. It was a direct competitor with what we were doing, but it was a far superior business model. And the team we had from Tubbs, it was tremendously collaborative. Yeah. 
and we listened to our employees. And I think it produced the best results because they all came in with specialties, uh, special skills, uh, operations, uh, call center skills. And then we added sort of the strategic view from our from our skills. And uh, really, it was very collaborative and, you know, it was very gratifying. Did you have any pivots along the way, even with Bagster? Were your assumptions about that business 80, 70, 90% accurate going into that business? Or were you off a little bit more? Tell me more about how you might have had to pivot, if at all, either strategically or tactically. You know, some of the uh, equipment that we looked at to support the Bagster model uh, required a bit of a pivot. And then we also had originally two sizes, which people wouldn't realize. So we had a the current Bagster that you see in the market is a three cubic yard bag. We originally started with a two cubic yard bag and a three cubic yard bag, not really understanding which size would appeal to the consumer. In the end, we ended up again with just a three cubic yard bag after consumer testing and beta testing and so forth. The other thing is the collection vehicle. We knew that it had to be set up as a system and that the collection vehicle had to provide safety efficiency, high productivity to reach the economics we set for the business model. And so we had to test a few of those uh, concepts. Yeah, I imagine that was a real interesting learning experience. I'm wondering how challenging it was once you got the product in the retail store for maybe a test. Maybe it wasn't literally a test, but maybe it was just a process for discovery for you. When you first entered that product into retail, to educate and support the retailer and have everything sort of ready on an early stage to suddenly have this equipment to pick up maybe only seven or 25 you know, bags around the Twin Cities, that's not a lot. Or did it sort of go up to 100, 200, 300 right away? How quickly did you sort of work that out? Well, a couple of points on that. First, Every time we entered a market, we had to have a matchup between product on the retail shelf and the supporting collection service vehicles in the market to go ahead and pick up the markets. This product requires a two-step purchase. The first purchase is at retail, and the second purchase is after they get home and they fill the bag, they have to call or schedule for their collection online. And so that was a challenge uh, and something that retailers and, frankly, customers aren't really used to doing. So uh, in a, in a, what we ended up doing was uh, when we entered the market, we spent a lot of time on our brand awareness. We had professionally designed packaging, point of sale, brand information. We also had professionally developed TV ads and spent a lot of money on TV ads just to gain some market awareness for what we're doing. And did you siphon those marketing dollars off from tubs? No, we did not. We kept those kinds of things very separate. We had a completely different marketing model for Bagster. Our advertising PR branding for Bagster was much more significant but what we what we did carry over from our previous business is the the knowledge that we had to target our advertising very strategically through demographics. We knew who our customer was and we knew the demographics around those buying customers. That translated into a retail strategy that allowed us to build retail presence based on where our customers shopped 
And so that allowed us to enter uh, stores like specialty hardware stores within neighborhoods that reflected the demographics of the Bagster product. So we penetrated those. We penetrated the rental retail stores within those areas. And then typically there's a core big box uh, located somewhere in that general area. And we were able to tier both our retail penetration and our sales and marketing efforts according to those demographics. Tell me how. So here we are in the tell me how segment of the podcast where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Sarah and David, let's talk about raising capital. Did you raise capital for Bagster? So when we started Bagster, we really planned, we planned our growth and funding at least through a Series A uh, before we could foresee our exit. Uh, We self-funded all of our development from concept through beta tests in Minneapolis, Denver, and Cleveland. Uh, We did this, which required a sizable investment. Uh, We did this with our own resources from our our existing business infrastructure. Like I said, we utilized some of that business infrastructure. Uh, We sought vendor financing for capital equipment. We used lots of our own savings uh, and eventually had revenue uh, that we could put back into the company. We did that through late 2006, so for about a year. And that helped us prove uh, at least our first three markets. Then in 2000, late 2006, we found an angel investor uh, with operations experience to come in and do a bridge loan. And this allowed us uh, to prepare for our launch into the New England markets. And and why did you choose New England? I think Sarah mentioned that we had a good demographic profile of our consumer. And we hired a, a firm at the time called Claritas, who then gave us a map of the United States and the best metro areas based on our demographics to open up markets. Interesting. And, and so you did raise some capital, but you did put in some of your own business, but you didn't really initially... You, you raised debt uh, instead of equity capital, correct? Correct. Did the process of raising money go smoothly? It's, it's always a challenge. We had built our proof of concept. We had really solid plans. Uh, we we were, had robust knowledge. We had already incorporated a lot of high-powered team members. You know, so we felt like we were doing things the right way. We also really had you know, one of those blue ocean opportunities. And we were doing something nobody else was doing yet. So we were pretty well positioned. And it's a, it's a big challenge raising money while you're still running your business, as any, any entrepreneur knows. But we ran into a few, uh, you know, a few hurdles, but, but really it was awesome to find partners who knew a local market and, you know, could help support the business through that stage. We ended up doing a Series A investment two years later. So in August 2007, we were able to raise a much more significant amount of money. And that really enabled us uh, to expand into to multiple major U.S. markets. And that was, that was really the plan. And I think our investors saw the same vision we did and, um, and were able to support us through that. 
How easy was it for you make, to make the decision that you wanted to raise that kind of capital in a Series A instead of self-funding or letting sort of bootstrapping it? We, we built that into our plan. So we, we knew that this was, that our exit was contingent upon us gaining shelf space at the retailers and geographical penetration. That's how we were going to increase our value. And so to increase our value, it required significant dollars to be invested in product advertising in order to support the retail sales and invest significant investment in expanding geographically with operations uh, throughout the country. We just knew that. that that was an acceptable you know, component for us going in. What did you learn most from raising that kind of capital? Uh, I think it's important to find investors that you're aligned with, that your goals for the business are the same as their goals for the business. And I think it also helps if they bring some skills to the table that maybe you don't have. And that just adds to the team. Yeah. Let's talk about finding a manufacturer when you go about finding manufacturer for the actual polypropylene bags. How did you go about finding somebody to produce that bag? Well, I have a background in international trade. So for me, it was relatively easy or comfortable to do a global search. We actually started in the U.S. first because I would prefer to, to, to buy U.S.-made products. But in the end, the, the cost of a U.S.-made bag would have equaled the retail price that we targeted for our consumer. So that made, uh, made sense then to do some global sourcing. We used Alibaba, but I also looked, uh, I didn't assume China would be the best source. Looked at uh, Brazil, Turkey, Mexico, uh, even the Middle East. Uh, but we ended up in China. And then we sorted through the various manufacturers there, reduced the number down to five. And then Sarah and I actually took the trip to visit these five manufacturers who were spread out throughout China. And we were looking for experience and export because the documentation to import into the U.S. is critical if you don't want it hung up at customs. Yeah, it so really is. With deep experience. Uh, we also wanted someone that had fair labor practices. Some of the plants that we visited were, frankly, horrendous. We wanted fair labor practices. And uh, we narrowed that five down to two. And then based on pricing and just the relationship side, we ended up working with one company out of China. And did you stay with that one manufacturer for the years that you owned the company? We did. Uh, one of the things uh, that was a bit unusual at the time is we did not have a buying agent in China, so we took we we bought direct. What that mean what what that meant was I would hop on a plane as <laughs> as terrible as the travel was. I'd hop on a plane on a regular basis just to let them know I could pop in virtually any time within twelve hours. So I kept uh, I made them understand that we were watching what they were doing. That even though it's China, they really weren't that far away. Were there any problems or issues that you experienced, perhaps in that first six or twelve months with them? You know, I no. We were in some ways. I'm sure we were lucky. But the other thing is with the product. You got to remember it was disposable. 
It was just a bag, so there, it wasn't mechanical in any way. So the need for quality was way less than if you were trying to manufacture a product that had um, quality issues. So we had a very basic product that was easily manufactured in China. But I think I read somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, David, that you were surprised at how challenging one of the manufacturers found, or, or at least maybe one of your manufacturing candidates. They didn't find it as simple as you would expect. I would think it'd be very simple to make. Yeah, no, in, in that sense, yes. Uh, all the manufacturers we visited look at our design uh, even though they were used to working with woven polypropylene, had never seen a configuration that we brought to them. And their comment was, well, this can't be done. Well, we just insisted that, yes, it can be done. Please do it. And they did, and it worked. Yeah. And were they an apparel manufacturer? Were they a tarp manufacturer? Were they a sailboat sail manufacturer? Who did that sort of thing? What, what did they specialize in? They specialized in... Uh, woven polypropylene bags. These bags have been used uh, historically for moving grain, flour, uh, even, even minerals. The only difference is that the configuration, the design of the bag, number one, they were way, way smaller, uh, cubic yard or less, and ours were three cubic yards. And we also wanted to make sure that we designed a bag that would be eight by four, so it would fit a door, piece of sheetrock, uh, that kind of thing for our customers that would be in the construction trades or even the homeowner DIY. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about selling the product to retailers. Early on, how did you approach them? I think, Sarah, you had a little bit of background in consumer products marketing. Do you remember those early days when you approached perhaps a couple of Ace Hardware stores or maybe you went to corporate? How did you do that? It was a really interesting challenge. Uh, when we approached the hardware stores here locally. First of all, we had a really friendly rapport and a good presence with these retailers. And when you present them with a product that they feel their consumers, their customers will value, uh, they listen. They want to absorb your information and they want your product to work. So we, they saw the, the value in, our, in, in Bagster and what that could bring to their customers. So that immediately created advocacy. And early on, did you go with a couple of renderings uh, to show them, or did you go in and present price sheets, order forms, terms and conditions sheets, any of that? Or did you sort of more collaborate with them earlier before you led to that ordering process? Yeah, we, we had focus groups before we went in and started the sales process. But also, what I liked about the hardware stores particularly was they're generally family-owned, and it's easy to strike up a rapport with them. They're willing to listen. We don't have to go through the corporate bureaucracy to introduce a new product. And um, it, it was actually, I don't want to call it easy, but the message was there. This is something new. This is something that uh, your store can participate. And they were willing to take it on. Did you participate in any trade shows? We did one trade show in Minneapolis uh, initially. But was that, that a consumer show or more of a uh, sort of a, a buyer show? It was a consumer home improvement show. I see. But, but we also participated in the local. Minneapolis has a series of local do-it-yourself homeowner improvement days. We participated in some of that as well. 
when you started distributing nationwide, did you have to set up sales reps across the U.S.? Did you work through distributors? Yeah, you know, the, the one thing we didn't uh, touch on as far as strategy was the franchise model. So we had a, we built this as a franchise model, and the local franchisee would then assist in contacting the stores for the sale. And why did you choose the franchise model? How easy of a decision was that? That seems like a, a major decision. And we should just make this clear, John, not, maybe not as part of the interview, but we didn't end up officially creating a franchise system, but we used the franchise model. I see, okay. Because a franchise system, a franchise an actual franchisee franchisor relationship would have completely bungled up our exit strategy. Okay. So, yeah, so yeah. We kept it all corporate owned, but it was it modeled after a franchise. Mm, okay. But but I'm curious how does that look? So we're talking to some entrepreneurs that are listening in or some aspiring entrepreneurs. So I'm curious what does that look like? Do you have offices, individuals across the country sort of applying that franchise model in any way and what are the functions of them? So uh, our business model really had the core customer service operations, the uh, supply chain management, distribution process, and advertising and marketing all housed out of Minneapolis. So that was our national headquarters and we ran all of those components of the business through our Minneapolis office. What our local partners did is they were really helped us facilitate the operational and logis logistics within their own market. So they handled the collection service side of the market and they also help support some of the retail uh, setup. They knew their local retailers, they knew the local hardware stores, and again, because we always had to sell a two-pronged product, meaning the product itself and the, the supporting service, they had to educate the retailers, and that was a really core part of our strategy, it's the in-store retailer education. I'm just wondering the first six to 12 months, how you applied that sort of educational training to the in-store personnel. This was critical. So what we did is we targeted, we viewed the, the in-store personnel, the, the sales clerks in Home Depot and Ace, True Value, as our advocates. We didn't have the ability to hire salespeople uh, to go into all these stores and promote our product. So we targeted the salespeople within these stores. And again, remember we talked about how we set up tier one, two, and three of stores based on our knowledge of the demographics in their area and where the business would come from. So we also uh, tiered our effort, higher effort in tier one, a little less effort in tier two, and frankly on tier three where we didn't anticipate much sales, uh, very little effort. And so a lot of pizza, a lot of uh, chicken dinners, uh, going in on a regular basis, and I, and I speak regular, and some of these stores with the highest sales volume, I would personally be in there as much as three or four times a week to make sure that our product was there, to check in and lad hand the, the sales personnel within the stores. There's no higher credibility, as we all know, when you go to a salesperson within the store 
and say, what do you think of this? And they give it a stamp of approval. And that's what we were seeking. Yeah. And I doubt this was doable on your part, but in a couple of consumer product businesses that I've been involved in launching, at times we were able to work with the retailer staff and even create programs and incentive programs, uh, contests, promotions for the people that would sell the most product. Could you do something like that? Frankly, we couldn't. Um, Home Depot wouldn't allow that type of activity sure. uh, for us to do that. So we didn't. But it was more relational building. And it's pretty amazing because the one of the things that we ended up doing, uh, we proved the concept through the, you know, the the individual independent hardware stores, and it was adopted pretty quickly. By the time we did our first test in home in a Home Depot store, um, they were shocked at the results of it. Uh, it was really one of their top market product tests that they had ever seen. And so they were incented to get this thing off the ground, too. Once they, once they saw the results of their market test, they were pretty thrilled. And they allowed us to do things like put our, put our displays in special areas. They would have a fully opened, expanded bagster and put a PVC piping frame in that bagster and hang it up above our display, which, you know, as you can imagine, for a big box retailer, that's really valuable space. And so they really engaged and got behind it and really allowed us to work with their, with their floor plans and everything. What were some of those key aspects of creating awareness and demand for the product? It's important to know that we had a really deliberate strategy that included you know, really robust, robust uh, branding, PR, and advertising. And by focusing on creating a very professional brand that was approachable by consumers of all types, um, whether they're professional remodeling contractors or homeowners who are preparing to move or rebuilding their decks, uh, we had to speak to you know, both sides of that, of that consumer market. And we really focused on, on putting out high quality pieces uh, that would stand out on retail shelves. And we spent heavily, like you said, on TV advertising. And the reason we did this was we had to show our product in use in order for people to quickly connect and understand the value for them. And really we felt the best way to do that was with visual. And when somebody can see buying a bag at a store, taking it home, filling it up, and having a truck come and collect it, then they saw the system in action. And this is what drove our tagline, buy, fill, gone. So, so that really became core to our, our strategy, is, is how do we promote that buy, fill, gone. The other thing we really needed to generate was heavy word of mouth. And the way we ended up doing that was through our, our high quality, high touch customer service call centers. We captured a lot of information and uh, delivered superb customer service at every touch point throughout the customer process. This generated a really high uh, number of, of satisfied customers 
And we were able to leverage that. And in a service industry, that's gold. Yeah, it just seems like a really well done integrated strategy. I'm going to add one thing. I think it's important that uh, our whole branding strategy, uh, we received an, uh, a recognition by AdAge as one of the top 10 brands of the year. Holy mackerel. Wow. And on that list was the Apple iPad, yeah. IBM, and I can't remember who else, and Bagster. So the, what we initiated, what we, the program, the branding program that we initiated uh, proved to be pretty successful. And we got a lot of help, frankly, in, in Minneapolis with some agencies here that are outstanding in building and brand building. Who did you use? So we, we really relied heavily on the agency called Gestalt and Jeff S. E-S-S. Um, so Jeff S. was really instrumental in helping us uh, with a lot of our campaigns. And Clarity Coverdale is the company who helped us identify the brand. And, you know, we worked really closely with them to come up with Bagster, Dumpster in a Bag. Let's get personal. So Sarah and David, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business, but never start one. It's all show and no go. And starting a business is highly unusual. What motivates a couple like you, Sarah and David, to stop just talking about launching a business and actually go out and start a business like Tubbs or like uh, Bagster? Yeah, for me, I think it's genetic. My family uh, founded a department store in South Dakota where I'm from. And in the family, either went into medicine or business. So I think having that background was was sufficient enough to give me the incentive to go and do my own business. Do you think you're a creator at at heart? Do you feel like you need to build some things? You hit it right on the nail. I, I love to create and build, and I get such great satisfaction out, doing, out of doing it. And do you prefer creating from scratch, or do you tend to maybe have some sort of base to start from? You know, it's a combination of both. I, um, I love to look for different solutions to a problem. And I think that uh, in the case of Baxter, for example, we caught wind of this happening in Europe and looked at it and knew we could do it better. Uh, so in the, in the case of tubs, the concept of tubs actually came from Australia. We saw that concept and took a look at it and thought we could do it better. And the fact that, it, that these two concepts uh, answer a market need that was not being addressed here was really the difference maker. Yeah. And Sarah, do you think you're a creator at heart or an entrepreneur at heart? You know, I'm an accidental entrepreneur. Um, I had a great career with high growth consumer products companies where I learned a lot. And I learned a lot about scaling. I learned a lot about what to do and what not to do. Uh, but I really never intended to go into business at all. I was on a track to go to law school. And um, I ended up helping David with some paperwork and hadn't intended to get involved in the first startup of, of Tubbs. But uh, lo and behold, I got sucked in and I, I learned that I really enjoy it and I really enjoy the process of 
figuring out all of the problems uh, that we're presented with as, as, as any entrepreneur is and, and really solving those problems and, and delivering something that people really want, need, and makes them feel good or happy uh, about their situation. David and Sarah, when you were first engaged, did you ever think, <laughs> did you ever think that you'd end up having this kind of story to tell at the end? It's not the end, obviously, but uh, <laughs> we've got quite a ways to go. But I'm wondering if you even envision this sort of state that you're in now, succeeding selling two companies like this. So it's interesting because David and I actually worked together at two companies before we even started dating. So we established our work relationship long before we ever got personally involved with each other. Uh, so I think that contributes to our ability to work together because we knew early on strengths, weaknesses, um, you know, where we can complete each other's stories. And that made it a lot easier. Now we had we're pretty planful, strategic people. Things never go as planned right off the bat. So some things have taken longer and some things have gone faster. But I think, you know, all in all, I think it's been a great journey. And frankly, we're both working on new things. So it, there's more to come. Did your success surprise you? You know, that's a good question. I think it's so much hard work when you're in it that you don't really stop to reflect on it as success. You know, it, to, to me, it's just doing the job that needed to be done. And we got some great outcomes, and I want to continue on. I, I don't think it's a surprise. I think it was part of the plan. It was a lot of fun. I can say that. We've had a, we had a blast building these companies. And I do think that, uh, like Sarah says, your nose is to the grindstone. You don't, you hardly have time to look up. And uh, I will say one of our biggest faults is we don't celebrate our success as much. We just move on to the next. David, what do you think has been your biggest joy or what are you most proud of in being an, an entrepreneur? Well, there are a couple of things. I think it, it satisfies a creative urge of mine that we talked about earlier. But the other thing is, it's been really, it's been very satisfying providing work jobs to our employees that we've had in the past. And one example is we had one employee that was very valuable and very instrumental in helping us move forward. And, and, we, and we rewarded him. But what happened was he was able to buy his first home for his family. To me, that was very gratifying to see because I contributed to that. Yeah, it's got to be feel great to do that. Sarah, how about you? What has been your biggest joy? You know, like David, it's working with the people. It's all about the people. And not only assembling teams that work well and thrive together to accomplish things, but actually opening personal opportunities for growth um, for each of the people we work with, each of the employees. We always try to um, give them their own personal growth path. And that's really, that's really gratifying. I would have to say my, my very proudest moment is to realize that I've grown and exited these two companies 
while at the same time raising my two awesome daughters. Yeah, how old are they now? Uh, we have one daughter who's 17, ready to go off to college next year, and another who's 15 in ninth grade. Wow, so great. David, what has been your biggest frustration? Gosh, you know, as an entrepreneur and a business owner and a business builder, there's so many frustrations. And it's really a hard path. And, you know, you stop and you reflect and you think, well, you know, what made this a success and what did that feel like and, and what was frustrating about that journey. And the, the incredible amount of hard work, the incredible number of hours you put in is just never enough. There's never enough time. There's never enough money to be perfect. And to me, that was just that that's such a frustration. The other frustrating point I, I, I come across and I'm trying to correct as I grow older is that um, I get very frustrated when I learn things too late. And I would echo that. I think uh, the, the biggest frustration is I wish I would have known that. What do you think you've learned most about yourself, either Sarah or David? What are your thoughts on that? I guess one of the things I've learned is that looking back, I know I can handle a lot more than I think I can, especially when I surround myself with great people and um, who are interested in helping me. And those, those people are everywhere. I also believe that when you have the confidence and you have a clear path, you can do whatever you need to do. David, how about you? Yeah, I, it's been, I love to learn. And I think learning uh, through these startups has been tremendous. And I feel like every time I go through one of these, I'll do it better. Who has been most influential to you, either of you? Well, I, I have to say my wife, Sarah, who's sitting right next to me. Good answer. Uh, after 25 years of working together, I have such a great respect for her knowledge um, and her advice, and I think we make a great team uh, with uh, checks and balance. You know, and, and ditto for me, not to steal his answer, but when you work as closely with somebody uh, as we do uh, for a couple of decades, uh, and you live with that person and come home with that person every night, really, there's no escaping influence <laughs> from somebody that intimately tied to your life. Fortunately, um, we've found a really good formula for making it all work. David and Sarah, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? There are things I'd love to share. I think uh, persistence is important. Uh, also being brutally honest about your own skills and being open to accepting advice and, and consultation from others who have those skills will only help you. If you're working, if you have a concept, just get it out there and start working it. Uh, don't worry about too many people finding out what you're doing. There are people out there, particularly in Minnesota, I love it, that are there to help you succeed. And my piece of advice is, you know, one of those things we learned too late, but when we became entrepreneurs for the first time, it wasn't cool to be an entrepreneur. There was not an ecosystem uh, in Minneapolis to support entrepreneurship. And as at that time, uh, in the 90s, being a small business owner was very isolating and very lonely. 
And my advice for entrepreneurs here in 2017 is there is a fascinating entrepreneurial ecosystem out there full of resources, full of people and networks uh, that, will, that will help you and tap into those resources and networks. Um, it's awesome what's happening in Minneapolis. And now as the founder of Go For Angels, uh, David and I participate in that ecosystem at a different at a different level and we're always thrilled to see what's happening out there take advantage get involved with, with what's out there and you'll get some you'll reap the benefits of it Sarah and David it's been a real joy you've been fantastic guests offering some great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners congratulations on your success for your entrepreneurial courage and for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you, John. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, John. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business. 